Welcome back to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my virtual neighbor, Max, on this fine, frosty Monday morning. How's it going, my friend? Uh, I would describe it as a cloudy Friday morning myself, but I don't know how it is back in London. I'm doing all right. Uh, It's been pretty cold here, which has been kind of nice because some of the local water has frozen over, so I've been able to get out and do some skating, which... If it's going to be cold, that's the best part of it. So glad to have that going. Yeah, that looks nice. I saw the photos that your your dad was putting up on the Instagram. And uh, yeah. I've been trying to find some local places here in London, but I just, A, don't have access to a car and B, just like busy most of the week. So it's been tough finding places to go. Uh, but I definitely want to get out sooner rather than later. We, we got... 20 centimeters of snow last night we sit right in the snow belt and so we just it's been constant snow we've had about two feet the last two weeks uh so a lot of shoveling (laughs) no uh hills to take advantage of some sort of like sled ski snowboard oh yeah we got in on that the thing is is the the actual the park that we went to most recently a day later got shut down by by bylaw officers because there were too many people there using it of course, which like is fair. Uh, but yeah, we, we, we didn't have any real toboggans. We had some, some cardboard, we had some garbage lids, uh, a couple Frisbees, one under, uh, the, one under the butt and you get going. Uh, yeah. So we, we made, made something out of nothing and that was a fun night to do some tobogganing. But, uh, do you remember uh, that thing back in middle school we bought? Like the, it was a skateboard with a ski attached to the bottom of it that was highly dangerous i think i think i still have mine yeah i i have no idea what i did mine. if i don't have it then probably hayden has it Mm. uh but yeah ripping down swansea on that thing that's how you break your entire back ripping down the part where people purposely poured water to make like a frozen run and then added a jump to the end those were the days (laughs) magnifique uh Yes, those are the days. But now we're stuck in these days. Uh, COVID stuck inside and nothing but sports and Zoom uh, to keep us comforted. So we'll move into a brief agenda of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I'm going to break down some football news and then my favorite Super Bowl prop bets. There's going to be plenty. I've sorted them into game-based weird and very outside the box. Uh, then we will move into some combat corner for our fight night preview, uh, and then just run through some NBA and NHL storylines uh, from the last couple of days. So might be a little bit less dense show, uh, which is okay because people are listening to a lot of Super Bowl podcasts right now. So need to be able to get through this one quickly and then move on to the next. Cause I'm sure there's a lot of people talking about the big game coming up on Sunday. So without further ado, And speaking of such football, uh, the sport, I'm going to jump into my first biggest piece of news, which in my opinion rivals that of the Super Bowl on Sunday. And that is the return of EA Sports college football uh, to the next generation consoles. It'll probably take two or three more years to come out, but college football fans, video game fans, sports game fans have been waiting for this elite video game for seven years now, uh, two more years won't hurt 
the excitement is palpable. Uh, this is the best sports game that I've ever played. And uh, just so, so happy that it's finally coming back. They're getting the player likeness issues sorted out and we're able to have this this game because the modes and the even the, the physics engines and the team colors and the stadium and all the effort that went in this game has always been superior to Madden. And so I'm hoping that they can bring that that same special qualities that NCAA football has always had uh, because this game we've been waiting for it for years and we're finally getting it back uh, and it is going to be insanely popular to play and and it's hopefully like you take the game that everyone's loved back in 2014 and you modernize it so that the graphics are just extremely well put together and then you've still got that awesome game that everyone has enjoyed previously my hopes are a little bit tainted by the fact that it's EA Sports and by the fact that Madden has seemed to progressively get worse in recent years. Um, so hopefully it won't be affected by that, but I just, I'm just happy to have all of the college teams back because that game is so, so much fun. Yeah. I mean, typically the trend with sports games is whatever EA Sports or whether it's 2K, they have a monopoly on it. So they invent their product. They're pretty happy with it. And then everyone goes out, buys it, plays it, and then they just get to redevelop the product again and again and sell it back to you with a few minor tweaks. So maybe that first one will be nice and there'll be such a thrill and rush of college sports, but I'd imagine they'll use all the same engines they do for uh, Madden. And I don't know, I've... I've been like hate playing 2K a bit these days. So I'm pretty uh, disillusioned and dispassionate about sports games at the moment. Just sitting here still waiting for a PS5. Yeah, just refreshing <laughs> that Best Buy Twitter feed nonstop on the Xbox. I've seen, I've seen a couple more Xboxes. You're probably going for the Series X, right? Yeah. Because yeah, the S has been in stock now for like 15 days straight. I've seen it's just it's the space I mean the way game development goes is they're like okay well we'll just make games that take up like a hundred gigabytes of space so I want that full terabyte and also I've put so much time over the years collecting discs and one of the best parts about Xbox is the backwards compatibility. I can play almost all of my 360 games on the Xbox One right now, and I'll be able to play all those 360 games like Saints Row and Modern Warfare 2, um, you name it, pretty much like the Arkham series on uh, the Xbox Series X. So it's it's worth the wait, even though it's frustrating. Sure. All right, I will move on to my Super Bowl props. This is the first time I've ever done a show like this. Uh, so hopefully it's interesting. I thought it was interesting when I was doing my research. Um, so I'm gonna jump right into it. And I'm gonna start with kind of the in-game prop bets that I'm looking at. And a lot of them aren't too crazy. There's not a lot of crazy odds on them, but um, I found a couple that were good value in my opinion, and, and I think they would be a good to take a stab at. So the very first prop that I have is that the last play of the game is going to be a quarterback kneel. And I think that one's easy. It's happened so often every game, even if a team is going for fourth, it, 
games usually never end on a Hail Mary. It's usually the most boring way possible, and that's with a quarterback meal. So that's minus 180. It's not great odds, but if you can parlay that with a successful fourth down conversion in a team's own territory, then you could probably get plus odds. I think that's a great one to combine because both of these teams are super aggressive. And at one point or another, they will go for it on fourth down inside of their own 50. Uh, so I think those two together are basically easy money. You put in a hundred bucks, you get back 120. It's light work. Um, moving on, player props. Uh, I looked at so many of these and they're so hard to put together. You really have to create a storyline of w- what you think is going to happen in the game. So I thought my best bet, like hundred percent sure thing is you got to go Travis Kelsey over receptions, basically no matter what it's set at, because he's always set around seven, eight, nine in these games and he'll have 10 in the first half and then three, three more for the rest of the game. He always ends up around 10 to 13 in these big games because he's Mahomes' favorite target. He's super reliable. He can get open on almost anyone. He's so good at sitting in soft spots in the zone. So I just think over Kelsey receptions, um, I don't know about yardage, but definitely over for receptions uh, is definitely a lock. Uh, Another one that I liked when I was looking through was total yardage on touchdown passes. I'm going over 121 and a half because I think there's going to be probably six touchdowns scored in this game. Uh, that averages out to about 20 yards per touchdown if, if there's only six. But I think there's going to be at one point, there's going to be a 50-yard bomb either to Scott or, Scotty Miller, Antonio Brown, uh, Demarcus Robinson, Tyreek Hill, of course. So I just think that is a, the, a fun one to do because you know there's going to be a couple bombs in this game. Uh, and if you had two 50-yarders, that racks up yards very quickly. Uh, the next one I'm looking at is the position of the first touchdown scorer of the game. Uh, and quarterback is at plus 900. I can see the Chiefs having Mahomes roll out and run into the end zone or just a Tom Brady quarterback sneak for the very first touchdown of the game. Uh, and I like the value at plus 900. So that one's good to just sprinkle a little bit of money on. I'd also sprinkle a little bit of money on there's going to be a safety at some point in the game. Uh, just because it's happened actually quite a few times in recent Super Bowls. Most notably for me, uh, happened against my Denver Broncos on the first play of the game when they snapped the ball over Peyton Manning's head. That was that was painful. But uh, yeah, if you bet it on this, then you get a little bit of money for, for the craziness that will happen in a football game. So why not sprinkle a little bit there, plus 900, it's great odds. The last in-game uh, bet that could happen, I'm going both teams to have the lead in the first half at plus 115. Uh, I think Tampa Bay scores first and then Kansas City does what Kansas City does where they're down 10 in the first half and everyone's going, where are the Chiefs? Where, when are they going to show up? And they come out and score 21 points straight in like five minutes and everyone's wondering what just happened. So I think there's a really good chance that both these teams have the lead in the first half. That could even just be a first drive field goal and then a next drive touchdown. Uh, it's just as easy as that. And at plus with 115 at plus odds, why not? Right. It's uh, it's just easy money for a game like this. All right. That wraps up the in-game prop bets. I'm now moving on to the weirdish prop bets. Uh, the first one is an in-game prop. 
it is that an extra point attempt will hit an upright. So uh, after the touchdown scored, Butker, suck up, get out there. Really big pressure in all these moments for kickers, and one of them's just going to doink it off one side or the other. It, it can doink and go in. It can doink and go out. All it's got to do is doink it. Uh, that's plus 450. I like the odds on that. I, I think it's a funny one, too, where you're watching the game with your friends, uh, or I guess not this year, but in my case, watching with my housemates, uh, and it doinks, and you start cheering, and they're just wondering what is going on because <laughs> you just made some money, my friend. Uh, coin toss. I have Kansas City to win the coin toss and the game parlayed with the coin toss winner wins game. Uh, and I'm not sure what the odds come out to on that, but it's probably somewhere around plus 400, which is pretty good uh, because you're basically just bet betting the same bet twice, but you can put them together. Uh, so Kansas City to win the coin toss and the game with the coin toss winner winning the game. Along the lines uh, of that, another coin toss bet is you can do is not the team, but you can just say the team that bets the correct call. Uh, and then bet what that correct call is. So I'm going team bets the correct call with tails. So that means Kansas City is going to correctly guess tails and win the football game, if that all works out together in your mind. Why not, right? <laughs> so very specific, but we love and over it. over a coin toss has got to be peak gambling. I mean, it's 50-50. So yeah. it might be some of the odds you've ever had. But if no, you just no. bet it's minus odds so it's less enticing uh moving along uh, i'm going to go under on the national anthem of two minutes um because this one normally people love going over they love thinking oh they're gonna hold that last no they're gonna hold that last line the flyby is gonna go over um and and most of the money goes to the over and i just think this one is one that can be manipulated, especially when the Jets go by. You can't hear when they finish the song. The God's Makers are probably going to try and stick it and, and make a little bit of money. So I'm going under just because it's the less fun option, but I think it's the option that's going to hit. Uh, Super Bowl MVP. I saw Brady and Mahomes. Like, it's normally a quarterback uh, in recent years, and Brady and Mahomes are both like big favorites. So it's kind of boring to bet them. If I were to go for a Super Bowl MVP and stick along the lines with the Chiefs winning, then I would probably have to go with Tyran Matthew or Chris Jones. Uh, they're really, really high underdogs to win it because a lot of the defensive Super Bowl MVPs that are up for grabs are like a JPP or a Shaq Barrett. Uh, one of those Bucks linebackers that are so fast and will make a ton of plays. But if you think the Chiefs are going to win, then I'm probably going with Tyran Matthew or Chris Jones as a Super Bowl MVP because they've got huge odds. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's better value. You can sprinkle five bucks and make 50 and, and yeah, and feel good about it. All right. Now we're going to get to some truly wacky bets. Uh, starting with the Gatorade that people are obsessed with. And another one where I'm going with the boring route, uh, I'm going clear at plus 600. I think red right now is 
almost even money because both teams have red in their color schemes. And so people are thinking that's what it's going to be, but then the odds are terrible. So why would you ever bet that? So I'm going clear. I think it's going to be water poured on one of these coaches. Uh, It's gross to be sticky. And I think teams have started to realize that you can also bet which group of players, offensive or defensive players are doing the pouring. Um, So I would have to go offensive. Uh, no, I'm going defensive because the offense will be on the field for the Chiefs needing the ball out while Andy Reid gets water poured on him by the defensive players. <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah. Uh, next on, we got some broadcast props. Uh, I have COVID to be mentioned before the word pandemic on the broadcast at minus 500. And I have COVID to be mentioned before the word mask at plus 200. Um, so you could maybe parlo- parlay those together, get some even better odds. Uh, I think those are funny ones. Yeah, I just think they're going to lead the show with in this COVID-19 pandemic, and you've already won your money. It's like the fourth word he says. Uh, moving along, other broadcast props. I have Bruce Arians, minus 200, to be the first uh, coach, so him or Andy Reid, uh, the one who shows their nose first from behind their mask. Uh, I think it's going to be Aaron's because he gets angry really quickly uh, and loves to yell and scream from the sidelines and his, his mask will droop down his face. So I have, I'm pretty confident in that one. Uh, Another weird one. Um, More broadcast. We got uh, Jim Nance and Tony Romo calling this game should be awesome. I have the primary color of Jim Nance's tie at plus 800 for purple. I'm going outside the box. It's probably not going to be purple, but why not throw five bucks on it, uh, see what happens. Tony Romo, I'm actually more confident about being gray because gray just seems like a very common primary tie color, but the odds are plus 900. So why not? I think that's great value. Um, Moving into the uh, halftime show, the prop that stood out to me, uh, we got our Canadian boy the weekend doing the halftime show. Uh, I'm going with him to sing the Hills first at plus 850. And Starboy, his big banger, is going last. And that's plus 1400. So some great odds on both of those. And uh, it should be a fun halftime show um, compared to previous years. I think the weekend's a pretty good performer. I'm not the largest fan of his music. Um, he's got a bunch of earworms though and and i think he it said he put seven million dollars extra of his own money into it making it what he wanted in his image so i think it's gonna be a pretty spectacular show um so looking forward to that from him and uh why not make some money off of it i don't know i don't know if last year i enjoyed more like the pole dancing or watching conservative twitter react to the pole dancing so i'm a little disappointed to get neither of those this year but uh maybe the weekend can pull something out and surprise me all right the last two uh are very very outside the box at plus five thousand i'm gonna put one dollar on this uh, for during a touchdown celebration, a player will throw the football into the cannon porthole of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers because uh, they have cannons there. <laughs> it's it's Disneyland sponsored. There was a prop bet to have um, one of the players mention Disney in their Super Bowl MVP speech. I think that's not going to happen, but 
throwing a football into the cannon porthole. We know some guys like to be crazy. We've got some eccentric personalities at the wide out position. Uh, and so why not? Plus 5,000, one, $1, <laughs> make some money if it happens. It would just be an epic moment in your life. If you're watching on TV, you got just a little bit of money on it. And they do that, you feel like a genius. You'd be levitating. <laughs> the last one, a Super Bowl commercial prop because uh, it's a, another huge aspect of the big game that people tune in for. I am going to bet on a Star Wars commercial of any, at, of any kind at only plus 150. I think that's a lock. They've always promoted their new movies or even like launched new shows. I think The Mandalorian had its premiere trailer uh, two years ago at the Super Bowl. I think they're going to launch another one because they've got so many new series on in production. And so I feel like this is a lock to have a Star Wars commercial at the Super Bowl. So there you have it. Those are my uh, in lengthy list of prop bets for the Super Bowl. There's so, so many more that you can find on various sports books. Um, but make sure, I don't know the line, but 1-800-GAMBLER uh, if you have a gambling problem. Uh, but if you're just putting a little bit of money on some Super Bowl props, shouldn't be too big of a deal. Uh, just make sure you stay off of the, the sketchy sites. <laughs> And you'll be fine. All right. That wraps it up. Now I know uh, what to do with that little bit of Christmas money I had left over. Thanks for that. Yeah, there you go, right? If, you, if you're not going to sink money into a new next-gen console, you can sink it into some Super Bowl prop bets. <laughs> Way to tie your two segments together, bud. Of course. All right, we'll take a quick break, come back for some combat corner. And we're back, Max. Preview the upcoming fight night this weekend for UFC. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm really excited for this one. I think top to bottom, this is actually might be the best one they've put on so far this year. Just as far as like number of fights I'm really excited about and like distribution of those fights. I'm going to kick off right with the main event, Alistair Overeem versus Alexander Volkov. Two heavyweight kickboxers going at it. This is the second time this fight has been booked, so they've had a lot of time to watch tape on each other and get familiar with each other's styles. And there's a couple things that make this fight really interesting for me. Um, mainly their shared experience with opponents. So let's start with Curtis Blades, who they've both fought and lost to. Several years ago, Alistair Overeem fought Curtis Blades in Chicago and was on the receiving end of some absolutely devastating ground and pound elbows that just put him out, despite him landing like several flush, flush shots. The guy's just got a chin and is absolutely terrifying. So Alistair Overeem goes and he says, wow, like that to be able to, this is a guy who was like a kickboxer his whole career, says, I'm going to go join your camp and learn to do what you do. I want to do that to guys. And that's what he does. He moves to Team Elevation in Denver and starts training with Blades and working on his grappling. Uh, more on that in a second. Alexander Volkov uh, has been pretty consistent throughout his UFC career with 
the one big setback being against Derek Lewis on that Conor McGregor card where Volkov won 14 minutes and 30 seconds of the fight and then threw a really stupid leg kick to get knocked out and make Derek Lewis a immortalized meme in the UFC. Derek Lewis probably sends his regards for that. But before then, uh, Volkov was on a great streak. I mean, if he had won that, he probably would have gotten a short notice opportunity to fight Daniel Cormier for the belt. But instead, DC, or instead, uh, Lewis did. And we know how that turned out. Volkov has had three fights since, a short notice replacement against uh, Greg Hardy, which, huh, maybe he's been booked to fight Overeem twice. I think he might have been. Anyway, he took the Hardy fight was really interesting because similar to Lewis, like scary, scary power. So he was just like dotting his eyes and crossing his T's for that one. Then he got a matchup against Blades and just got so against Curtis Blades, Blades' athleticism just made the difference. Blades was heavier than him and faster than him, and it just let him get takedown after takedown position and ride out the rounds. The first two rounds, Blades just put in work on Volkov and took them, and it was an uphill battle from there. It got really interesting after that because Blades' conditioning just there's no one with the conditioning to be that heavy and that fast and do it for an extended period of time and when you saw the explosiveness of blades get taken away you saw a lot more 50 50 positions and then you were kind of able to see okay volkov has been working on his grappling defense and when like blades is stepping in as a human speed like more close to Volkov's reaction time Volkov can actually do the right technical things and like the positions get contested back and forth and Volkov had his own a little um he threw a really frustrating front kick I think right at the start of the third round that Blades was just able to catch in time for a takedown But anyway, the point I'm trying to make here is that Alistair Overeem is training at a camp with a guy who just had a very successful five-round fight against Volkov. Now, if you look at Overeem's past three fights, they've they've been very similar in that they've been against strikers in Yarzinho Rosenstrike. Um... I'm blanking on the other two names at the moment. <laughs> Yarzinho Rosenstrike, who he lost in the last 10 seconds against, but implemented a successful grappling game. Uh, Walt Harris, who he was in serious trouble against, and then he managed to bring some grappling into it to survive and maybe even win the round. And then take a lot out of Harris's gas tank and he then finished the fight on the feet and Augusto Sakai who he had two very close rounds of kickboxing against I actually I really have trouble scoring those first two rounds but they were very close and then uh, Overeem started grappling and that totally turned the fight in his favor I mean he did it just at the end of the third round and it was kind of just enough to win the round then he did it again in the fourth round and it was 
he started to land some serious damage. I think he landed enough damage in the fourth round that when he went right back to the grappling, right back to the ground and pound in the fifth round, um, Herb Dean was just like, yeah, I'm stopping this. I thought it was a bit early. Sakai thought it was a bit early, but I mean, if you look at how the fight was being scored and how it had progressed, it's not, it didn't rob Sakai of a victory, just like a chance for an underdog comeback. Um, the thing about the Sakai fight, though, was the takedown form was very poor. He kind of just dove, grabbed a leg, and rolled onto his back, pulling Sakai with him, and then scrambled on top. I think Volkov actually had underrated takedown defense after that blades fight like i said it wasn't his form that was the problem it was that he was lighter and slower than blades so to fix this volkov has put on a fair amount of weight he came in much heavier for his next fight after the curtis blades loss against the aforementioned walt harris and looking at his instagram now he's still a thick thick boy <laughs> So the Walt Harris performance from Volkov was phenomenal. I mean, it I can't really compare it to how the, I think this fight is going to go because no disrespect to Walt Harris, but he's a very one-dimensional threat in that he has serious explosive knockout power with his fists, but not a lot else to his game. And Volkov just was so in the zone for that fight. He established his range, he figured out the danger zone, and he just used his jab to keep Harris out of it, kept inching him forward towards the cage. I mean, two minutes into that fight, I think it went maybe seven minutes total, and it looked like Volkov had already won. He just constantly had Harris backing up, testing him with the jab, always like in timing to stay out of Harris's danger shots, just slowly putting in the body work, mixing up his kicks really well. And he finished it with that beautiful deep front kick to the liver that just shut Harris down. But it was just one of those in the zone performances. And that brings me to this fight. So we saw from Volkov, when you let him get comfortable at his kickboxing range, he is very, very dangerous. Overeem is going to have a lot of different tools to try and not let that happen. But if you watch the Sakai fight, he does kind of tend to back up a little and get his back against the cage uncomfortably. And he had a he had a frame and reach advantage against Sakai where he was able to frame up and not let a lot of hooks get to him. But I think Volkov is a lot more dangerous with straights to hurt uh, Overeem if he gets careless in the defense. I mean, but Overeem's going to have knees in the clinch. He's going to have more kicks. I mean, the head kick he hit Harris with was devastating. So a lot more for Volkov to worry about. I'm really curious how much Overeem is going to pursue the grappling. I I had to rewatch his fights. I kind of thought he almost had a grapple first mentality. It's not so much that it's just another weapon in his toolbox and i'm curious how he uses that weapon with a camp in his corner who know exactly or have implemented a successful wrestling game plan against volkov i 
I think if he leans on it too much or tries to go to it too often, too early, Volkov is going to have no problems shutting it down. But if he continues what he did against Sakai and against Harris of just leaning on it in the opportune moments, that could be a path to victory him for him. I mean, in terms the UFC heavyweight division, you've got Nganu finally booked to fight Stipe, which is a long time coming and I'm so excited for. And then you've got Curtis Blades as that number two contender after Nganu. He's going to be fighting Derek Lewis, so Lewis has an opportunity to steal. And then it gets a little less clear after that. Um, you've got, I've talked about this in earlier podcasts, but then you've got Yarzinho Rosenstrike who's booked to fight Cyril Gaon. And then you've got these two, I think, right in there at the same level. The uh, Rosenstrike overeem comparison is kind of hard to make. Well, you put Rosenstrike over Overeem, but then you lost to Nganu. Whoever wins this one is going to be on a similarly nice winning streak. So you want to match them up with um, the Gaon Rosenstrike, the Lewis Blades winner, and then have one contender emerge from that to challenge the winner of Stipe Nganu. And there's a lot of people who are really hoping for Overeem to pull this out. I mean, the man's done everything except UFC gold. Strike Force Grand Prix, kickboxing KS1. I think he's been a pride champion. So if at like 40, 41 years old, this guy with like over 60 fights can make his way to UFC gold, that would be such a fantastic story. I've, despite saying that, my uh, head says Volkov, I think two technical kickboxers they who both kind of start out slow and then feel their way into the fight it's gonna favor volkov just he's a little younger a little faster he's added weight so he's going to be carrying more power i think and i think the drawbacks of added weight aren't gonna really hurt him too much because he doesn't throw high enough volume to get too tired and I don't think Overeem is going to have the speed advantage to make him pay for being a bit slower with that extra weight all right so that's the main event which is great but there's two other really fantastic fights on this card starting with the co-main event Corey Sandhagen versus Frankie Edgar like the main event, this is a fight that's already been booked one, so you've got to think these guys have had a lot of time to prepare for each other. Um, and this is a really interesting one. I mean, Frankie Edgar, former UFC lightweight champion, basically cut zero weight for that, eventually moves down to featherweight, but he's still taking it pretty easy. I mean, I remember seeing in the... Uh, uh, the behind the scenes fight week videos the UFC posts in the Max Holloway lead up he was he has to cut weight on the day of but like he doesn't have to strictly diet for weeks and weeks so he was still a pretty small featherweight and you've got to feel bantamweight is like finally the division where he's not at a frame disadvantage against all his competitors and the Pedro Munoz fight was all you could ans ask for, for what questions do you have for the answer? And he answered them all. Um, he looked so explosive and had such fast, crazy footwork. It was a five-round firefight, in a sense, 
like heavy throwing nonstop pace the whole time. So there's no cardio questions for him and just being against smaller guys, I think really benefits him and just having less of a reach disadvantage to contend with. Um, I mean, the game of Frankie Edgar is fairly simple and straightforward, really fast, explosive, excellent footwork mixed with sharp timing, quick hand boxing, and cemented by a phenomenal wrestling game that he can, I'm not going to say take you down at will, but that threat is always in his back pocket. And if you're not worrying about it and you focus too much on the first two things I mentioned, you're going to pay a la um, Yair Rodriguez. Now, against Munoz, that worked out fairly well for him because the wrestling threat was there to make Munoz double think a little about everything. But Munoz is, again, kind of like I said with Walt Harris, a fairly one-dimensional threat. He has that big overhand right, that power you have to watch out for, and not a ton else. Um, He did get off some nice leg kicks against Edgar, though, which I'll get back to in a second. But So against a guy like Munoz, just that footwork style, explosive movement always circling worked really well for edgar i mean he could have his back two feet from the cage and still not really be in harm's way just able to circle out in an instant and always create the openings from do so but Corey santagin is a very different kind of fighter than pedro muñoz which has me really excited he's very multi-dimensional so many facets to his game Right out the gate, you see him like come out switching stances, throwing uh, power leg kicks from both sides. I mean, that the spinning back kick finish in his last fight against Marlon Marias was crazy impressive. I think he's a brown belt jujitsu. He put great grappling against Rafael Asuncao. Um, he the teep kicks, the head kicks. He just mixes it up and is constantly throwing something different and from kickboxing range. So I'm curious to see how Edgar approaches this. Uh, I mean, the easiest path or the biggest hole we've seen in Sandhagen's game is despite what I said about jiu-jitsu, he's been in submission trouble twice, really. First against John Lineker in a fight he won, he got wrapped up in a guillotine right at the end and probably would have gone out if the fight hadn't ended. So saved by the bell once, but then in that title contender matchup uh, last June against Aljamain Sterling, Aljo just jumped right on him, took him down, and submitted him in less than a minute with a really impressive, sneaky right-hand to left-hand rear naked choke. Um, Funk Master, a little more jujitsu-based grappling, I mean, training with Ray Longo, Matt Serra, then Frankie Edgar, the more wrestling style, but it tells you that that there is that submission hole kind of in Sandhagen's game. And maybe, I mean, it doesn't even have to be a submission for Edgar. I mean, you, I talked about the Rodriguez fight. It comes to mind just because the Sandhagen-Rodriguez comparisons are pretty clear. I mean, both tall, rangy kickboxing styles with fairly thin for the division. So that 
is the first thing Sandhagen is going to have to make sure doesn't happen to him. He doesn't just get stuck in with Frankie Edgar on top of him doing that very special, like postured up full guard ground and pound. Um, I mean, the takedown defense, you've got to think after that Aljo fight, he's been working on it and he's going to be very careful not to let that happen. How he does it is what I'm curious about because the versatile kicks are a great weapon for him against the movement of Edgar. If he can time Edgar's like left, right, left, right, and uses switch stance to see what the problem for Munoz on the leg kicks was, is all uh, Edgar really had to do was move away from the power side of Munoz and the leg kicks weren't landing as well. They only really landed nicely when Edgar was moving into the power. But if Santagon can switch stance and time Edgar when he's moving to the left with the left power kick, that's going to slow the footwork down of Edgar. Um, but the front kicks I worry about if you're Sandhagen because that's a really easy way to invite a takedown. So can Sandhagen establish his kickboxing range? Can he keep it there? Can he use his like incredible versatile wheelhouse of kicks and strikes to keep Edgar at bay, keep him guessing and not let him get established and comfortable? Or can Edgar use that footwork, stay out of danger, and time him? I, I feel like if Edgar's going to win this fight, it's going to be on the ground, not on the feet. But you never know. And that has me super excited for this Comey event. The last fight that I want to really talk about, or at least give a solid preview of, is the main event Or I think it's been moved off the opener. The main card shifted around a little but you've got uh, Benil Dariush versus um, shoot Diego Ferreira, which is a really exciting fight. Benil Dariush is on a five-fight win streak and four-fight finishing streak after a three-fight non-winning streak of uh, two knockout losses and a draw, the which was really tough and it's already an incredible comeback, but it will get so much more incredible if he can continue this momentum. Diego Ferreira, I mean, the biggest knock on him is activity. His last loss coming in 2015 to Dustin Poirier, but since then he's had one, two, three, four, five, six, six fights, six wins. I mean, you can't complain there. The two biggest wins being the two most recent fights. First, Rustin Cat or Maribek Tysimov, who was on a five or fight, six fight win streak himself. That was a big upset, earned him the opportunity against Anthony Pettis, and he took it by submission. So two guys in the most stacked, most deep, most dangerous division in the UFC, both on five, six fight win streaks, both trying to crack that top five and I really hope the winner of this one does get an opportunity against like a Michael Chandler, a Justin Gaethje, a Charles Oliveira, whoever's not fighting for the title should be fighting the winner of one of these guys because whoever wins it is absolutely going to have earned it. And just the stakes alone make this fight so exciting. I mean, it's so hard to talk about the game of Diego Ferreira just because we see so little of it over the years and you don't really know how it's going to have evolved. He did a fantastic job 
dealing with the striking of both Tysimov and Pettis, especially Pettis. I mean, I think Pettis was coming off uh, his loss to Diaz and he forever had had a win one, lose one, win one, lose one. So you just wanted to put money on Pettis for that because after a loss, he gets a win and Fajera broke that streak and he kind of made it look easy. He just great footwork, great, never great pressure to never really let Pettis get comfortable, get set up and force him into a grappling exchange. And Pettis is an excellent jujitsu practitioner and black belt. Um, the submission over Michael Chiesa was huge for him. So to submit a guy like that is a fantastic feather in the cap. I don't know who I'd give the grappling edge to between Pettis and Dariush, but he'll have to, if he's going to pull a submission out, it will have to be similarly against an excellent jujitsu practitioner. I mean, the first two finishes of Dariush being an armbar over Dober and a rear naked choke over Frank Camacho. The armbar over Dober has aged beautifully with the streak that Dober's on now. And then even, well, certainly more impressive or enjoyable as a fan are the two knockouts that have come next. First, the crazy comeback against Drakkar Close, where Close had him hurt, was pouring it on, and Dariush found a finishing shot or found a hurting shot to get right back in there and come back with a knockout. And uh, if you haven't seen it, the UFC posted a video today, yesterday, of Dariush accepting the comeback award of the year for that finish. And it's a pretty heart-wrenching, tear-jerking moment hearing Dariush accept it. He then had a spinning backfist knockout over Scott's Holtzman. Even more uh, impressive, well, spectacular in a highlight sense. And I don't really know what to make of the game of Dariush, to be honest. I mean, he's not this crazy athlete but just he has an ability now i think tempered over those losses to stay calm in danger to not do anything reckless to fight through it um he's developed amazing timing to find these knockout shots and there's a very scary submission game um lurking that was kind of in the back pocket after those last couple knockout wins so two really scary grapplers who have figured out how to bring their striking to the level it needs to be to be at the top of the UFC. I mean, the cliche is you put two grapplers in the cage together and it turns into a striking match. So kind of expecting that. We'll see who shoots first. But this, the stakes of this alone make this such an enticing matchup that I cannot wait for. There's a few other interesting names, interesting fights on the card, but I think this combat corner has gone on long enough. So we'll wrap it up there. Uh, like I said, three really exciting, enticing matchups, and I can't wait for it. So we'll be right back to talk some basketball. And we're back for our NBA storylines. I was busy watching the Leafs game last night, but some basketball went on as well. Owen, take me through it. 
Yeah, so I was staying up a little bit later than normal because there was an NBA Top Shot pack drop last night that I was unsuccessful in getting, but I uh, stayed up quite a while into the night watching the uh, Denver Nuggets and the Los Angeles Lakers. And once again, two of the top three MVP candidates and Nikola Jokic and LeBron James and the Nuggets have been on a roll recently. Uh, they moved all the way from like 12th seed to the fourth seed because four through 14 in the Western Conference is still pretty tight. Um, and they've been on a roll and Jokic has been fantastic putting up numbers like we've never seen. But you can still see in this game, the level of class difference between these two teams. The Lakers beat them four to one in the bubble last year in the playoffs, despite Jamal Murray being an absolute supernova. And it happened again tonight where the Nuggets played really well in the first half. They're up by 12 going into the second half and they get outscored 68 to 35 in the second half by this Lakers team that just can turn on an elite defensive presence. Dennis Schroeder had a moment where he dove for the same loose ball twice in one play, uh, just trying to knock it away from Jamal Murray. And uh, it's just a bunch of guys who now have continuity. Um, they brought in some smart defenders in Gasol, in Schroeder, in Harrell, guys who just fit in and, and can play very energetic and solid defense. Uh, and that's why they're, been so successful is that even if the shots aren't going for a quarter they can just clamp up the other team and that's really led by Anthony Davis and and some of their role swing guys so really really impressive win from the Lakers LeBron gets another triple double with 27 10 and 10 and moves past uh into the third spot on the all-time field goals made list. So he's made the third most shots all time. Now only sitting behind Kareem and Carl uh, Malone. So uh, another milestone continues to fall for LeBron and Lakers get another uh, signature win in the regular season against a uh, contender in the Nuggets. Moving on to another game that happened last night, the Golden State Warriors blow out the Dallas Mavericks. Kelly Oubre with 40 points. Finally has his breakout moment uh, this season. You knew he was going to get a lot of opportunities with the gravity that that Steph provides. Uh, and he had just been shooting terribly uh, for the first couple weeks of the season. He finally gets a big night tonight. So happy for him that he's finally settling into his role, being a little bit more comfortable. And the shots, shots are starting to go. And, and for the Dallas Mavericks, I, I mentioned them a little bit before, but they are they got to have to turn it on sooner rather than later. Them and, and Miami are kind of two teams that everyone expected to really be in that playoff mix who have pretty poor records to start the season. And you know, they have another level in them that they, they might have to get to sooner rather than later. I imagine they are trying to conserve a little bit for the playoffs, but you got to make the playoffs first. And so in Dallas's perspective, you've got Luca and Chris Stapps has been, either injured or all right, but he's not, he hasn't been that number two that they've expected. They traded for Josh Richardson, who gives you a little bit more defensive energy, but the shooting numbers across the board, three point shooting for the Mavericks have all gone down compared to last season. A big part of that was losing Seth Curry. Um, and so it, you just see Luca looks a little bit frustrated when he's creating these wide open shots for guys and they just start falling like they did last year. And, uh, 
when you're not the number one offense like they were last year and your defense is middling, then then you are going to struggle. And, and that's what ha- what's happening in this deep Western conference. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be, we're going to learn a lot about Luca's character over these next few months and maybe even years, but it's all well and good when you're like the number or there's all this potential around you but you're not being taken seriously yet and all you have to do is uh, I guess like outperform mediocre expectations but then once you set the bar that high and people are saying like oh is he going to be the next Kobe is he going to be the league MVP like after LeBron's time is he going to be the best player in the world I mean it's not just the fan expectations, but the teams start start taking you seriously to a whole nother level. Uh, I don't know if you, and well, there's the frustration you're talking about. I don't know if you remember that time in the Raptors game where he just elbowed Stanley Johnson. Yeah, he, he's been getting frustrated by teams and the Raptors are a little bit different because what they do on most nights is they have a game plan designed specifically for the best player on opposing teams and they look to just shut that player down. So it is a little bit different in that regard. But yeah, he, he has been frustrated this season. Yeah, and more. And then the big question is then what... I mean, it's it's like an eight-game slide or something. It's too early to really be saying this, but just like what... When it doesn't work for you, what do you do? Do you stick with it? Do you ask for new te- teammates or do you ask out? And I don't know when that question starts getting thrown around seriously, but... Do you think if you're the Mavs, you start looking like, okay, who who can hit these open shots because we need more of that? Oh, definitely. You're definitely looking for more support for Luka. The problem is, is they were so great offensively that they needed to give up some of that firepower for some defense, and that's what they tried doing, but then it really affected the, the way that this team can score. I still have 100% faith in Luka because he's just so special, and he's 21, and he moves at his own pace, and he still puts up triple doubles every night. Um, he's super special. Uh, they have had some COVID and some injury issues, so I'm sure they're not at a hundred percent, um, like peak performance as a team and, uh, everyone still hasn't fully settled into their role as we see Ubri is now with Golden State. Uh, so I think they're still looking for that because I think once they get more comfortable, the shots will start going down at a higher clip because there's only so many open shots you can miss in the NBA. Uh, what I would say is, you have to be absolutely certain that Porzingis is your number two, because if he's not, he's got to move. You got to find uh, a reliable three and D center to replace him, or you're looking for another big star. And, and obviously Giannis was the, was the perfect match that we wanted to see, but Giannis is loyal and we appreciate that. So then it's looking for that next star that maybe you can lure or trade for uh, to get to Dallas because uh, if Luca has a running mate who who's a good defender, I think that's really important. They have to play decent defense. Then like, he his potential and and what they can do elevates immensely because Luca just needs like one other special outlet and Shaq to his Kobe. Exactly, he's he'll be unstoppable. Uh, so if I'm Dallas, I'm not not freaking out yet. Obviously, you're performing below expectations, but when you've got this one of a kind talent and just the shots aren't going you can live with that because eventually it's going to come around it's just going to be if it's too late in this western conference 
that that is how I felt about the Raptors in the early season. Like I, I liked a lot of the three point shots they were taking. They weren't going in, and uh, you've seen that improve plenty. Yeah, but the Raptors, especially, like you've got guys now settling into roles. There were a lot of new players, new faces, and guys getting more minutes. So it did. There was an adjustment period, right? You've got Yuta Watanabe coming in, Chris Boucher, Stanley Johnson getting new minutes, Aaron Baines, new player coming in, just guys in new roles that they haven't had to fill before. Uh, and so it has been an adjustment period, but you've seen them starting to take a leap, which segues me perfectly into the story that I've been waiting to talk about on this podcast. Uh, speaking of leaps, Mr. Steady Freddy, the boy, bet on yourself. Fred Van Vliet drops a career high, a Raptors franchise high, and the highest number of points scored by an undrafted player in NBA history, 54 beating Carl uh, Malone's 50 or Moses Malone's 52 and DeMar DeRozan's 52. Uh, wow. Congratulations, Fred. What a performance. He was like bone chillingly efficient shooting 11 of 14 from three uh, just, and like hitting all sorts. It was almost a Curry esque performance coming around screens uh, some deep threes, then attacking and using contact to his advantage, bouncing off guys and finishing layups in traffic. Just an unbelievable performance that the Raptors truly needed. Uh, he was the spark. Orlando jumped out to an 11 nothing lead to start the game, and Fred hit a, a pretty big three-pointer to, to kick the Raptors off scoring-wise. Um, and just super, super special. He's one of only 13 players in the league averaging 20 points, six assists, and four rebounds. Uh, and he is one of five players in NBA history to ever score 50 points with three blocks and three steals, joining Michael Jordan, Hakeem Olajuwon, Dirk Nowitzki, and Anthony Davis. <laughs> because he had a couple uh, kind of half-steal blocks that they counted as blocks. I think he stripped Terrence Ross going up for a yeah. shot on a fast break. Um, but hey, like... It just shows how great his hands are too, that he's able to get three blocks and three steals in a game where he's gassing himself on the offensive end. At the end of the third quarter, uh, when he stripped Ross down the quarter, he's just sitting there, hands on his knees. Like he had to carry them through that third quarter. It's just so superb. Uh, it's so fun to watch him. Like how have you have said, it's even more impressive when a guy can put up numbers like this and have a skill set like this at his size, because most NBA players are just freaks of nature. But when it's something, a skill that you've honed so perfectly, like Fred has, and the story where he's come from, like he told teams to pass on him in the draft in the second round because he didn't want to get uh, buried in the in the G League. He wanted to sign an undrafted contract so that he can make a squad uh, right away without being buried in the in the G League. And so just, wow, like what a story. So incredibly proud of him. And, and shout out to Fred, man. That was awesome. Yeah, and it just continues. We're seeing the identity of this Toronto Raptors team this season kind of continue where they left off last, where on any given night, you don't know who the guy is going to be. It, it's been Siakam some nights. It's been OG some nights. Lowry with one of the quietest triple-doubles you'll ever see with uh, pairing with Freddie. Uh, you see you. Watanabe and Stanley Johnson stepping up in their moments. Uh, Boucher, 
obviously early in the season. And that's, I mean, I don't, I don't know what my expectations of Van Fleet or for Van Fleet are moving forward from this. He's been, I mean, I guess that is a pretty impressive average you listed, but he's been quiet on a lot of nights, not like a consistent 25 point scorer, but maybe this will be the spark where he does continue to step up. I mean, he's certainly a, uh, the type of performance that more than justifies the contract he had already earned for himself. What I, what I really loved from that Fred is he kind of looks like the next Kyle in the sense where uh, Kyle Lowry has been so amazing throughout all these years of knowing what his team needs and basically filling gaps in a game where Kyle can come out and be and get 11 assists in one quarter because he knows his other teammates are hot and they're operating and he needs to give people the ball. But then there are times when Kyle's like, okay, no one's making any shots. It's time for me to go to work. And you can see glimpses of that with Fred where like he's now recognizing the game from such a high level and, and such an overtop view that he knows it's, Hey, tonight we're not shooting. Well, I need to put up 50 and, and that's obviously the extreme scenario. But sometimes you don't have to have these incredible stats to win games. And so even though Fred's putting out these solid stats and there maybe not be as consistent as you like, I think he could put up consistently 20 to 25 points if he really wanted to. Uh, like, I don't know, like a Bradley Beal who wants to put up 35 but is on a terrible team. Or a Trey Young who puts up these incredible numbers but plays no defense. Whereas Fred sacrifices some of those numbers to get the three blocks and the three steals and move the ball around and get secondary assists to corner threes. He just plays within the game and picks his spots to really take over. And that's why uh, the Raptors have been so successful is because they have got these two point guards who are just incredible at managing the game. Yeah. I mean, I love, we've talked about this before, but the reason I mean, you kind of hinted at it when you're talking about Van Fleet, but the reason like Steph Curry is probably still my favorite player in the league is just what the threat he brings at range just opens up the whole game. And it's so fantastic for me to see like a 6-1, player um, control the entire floor like that. And that, I guess you can kind of say is, well, Van Fleet has that range, which is so exciting. And stepping into those more and more into that role Lowry fills is what I'd love to see, but with a little more of his own signature touch, because when you're a threat from that deep, just the way the team has to guard you and play you is going to open up the court. And Lowry, one of the highest IQ basketball players in the league, even if uh, some of the choices he makes with that IQ are frustrating at times. And that's, Van Fleet definitely shows glimpses of that. I would say not to the same degree, and but that's the development I'd hope to see him take. Like, if you've got OG sitting in the corner for a three, and Siakam sitting like ready to spin into the paint, Boucher ready to cut into a lane, and you've got to guard Van Fleet like from the forty foot mark, then how do you stop that? So, there's the direction I'm hoping to see, and yeah, we'll. Uh, maybe have a bit of debate on what our favorite Toronto sporting moment it was a little later, but certainly an excellent one for Fred Van Fleet. Yeah. 
and and it'll be interesting to see what he does to follow that up tonight as the Raptors get their first look at the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, I believe OG Ananobi is out, which is a huge loss because uh, he would probably be guarding James Harden um, and would see Siakam on uh, Durant, but those guys could kind of flip-flop because OG probably be a little bit more uh, would be a little bit better on Durant just because he puts up less offensively. So he'd be focused on that matchup a little bit more, but without OG tonight, you'll probably see Siakam and a little bit of Boucher on Durant. I, I worry about Boucher's foot speed. Um, we'll probably see Kyle on James Harden just because of the, the body types and then Fred on Kyrie, which will be a really fun one to watch. Um, Pray for like five charges. Yeah. I, it, I think, the Raptors are going to have to be able to shoot the ball well tonight because it's going to be a lot of points back and forth. There's only so much that Raptors defense can do against three generational offensive talents. Uh, so it should be a fun one to see how Nick Nurse draws up the game plan. Finally, uh, the player that Fred Van Vliet passed on the Raptors franchise scoring record, DeMar DeRozan, has quietly been putting up his best season, uh, an all-star caliber season, down in San Antonio for a team that as recently as five days ago was fourth in the Western Conference, got passed by uh, Denver and, and lost and slid down the rankings a little bit, but they're right in the mix uh, despite everyone's low expectations. The San Antonio Spurs are right in the mix. DeMar DeRozan last uh, two nights ago against the Timberwolves had 30 points, uh, six rebounds, eight assists. He's putting up uh, like 25, five and six on the season. Uh, his shooting numbers and efficiency are up across the board. He's been truly, truly excellent on a developing team that needs his leadership presence. And I wonder if he gets moved before the trade deadline because of how well he's playing. A contender could pick him up, but like love to see the true maturity and development of DeMar's game. He's not forcing three-pointers like teams have asked him to do. He's taking them within the flow of the game. Um, he's moving the ball better than he ever has before. And he's been everything this San Antonio Spurs team has needed because they have seen the growth of DeJounte Murray. They've seen the growth of this new kid, Keldon Johnson, who seems to not be afraid of anyone and will just take attack any defender. I remember they were playing the Lakers and Keldon Johnson was just, okay, I'm going to go lay out like attack LeBron I'm gonna go attack AD uh he has no fear and it's it's really cool to see him develop uh and they've had contributions from Rudy Gay and LaMarcus Aldridge two of the uh older guys on the team who aren't necessarily the most statistically special but they've been around for the league a long time and are teaching these younger players how to grow and play the game the right way and with Greg Popovich near the end of his coaching career uh, I think the Spurs just continue to want to compete while he's still there before completely tearing it down and starting anew. And, and DeMar has been a really key part, part of that. So all-star voting's out. I, I worry. I don't think any Raptors are going to get in there just in terms of fan popularity. I didn't see them in the top 10 in, in any of the preliminary rankings, which is unfortunate. But I saw Wiggins. Yeah. Let's get, a, let's get DeMar in the playoffs because he deserves it. And, uh, yeah, I think – yeah, the what was it? He got ranked 82nd in the players' rankings by ESPN. Uh, never forget that because he is like a top 30 player in the league, and 
uh, has was an all-star consistently in the East, has not been one in the West yet, but he definitely deserves it. So shout out to Damar, man. We still love you. We miss you. I hope he comes home one day. Um, yeah, gotta love it. Yeah, um, I think maybe later on we'll talk about the all-star break. I don't think they should have an all-star. Yeah, I, I actually was going to bring it up. Let's talk about it right now. March okay. in Atlanta, Georgia. The All-Star game has been set. It's already met harsh criticisms uh, from De'Aaron Fox, who stated flat out, I don't like it. Uh, LeBron James criticized it last night after the Nuggets game. Um, I think a lot of stars are very uneasy about the prospect of having to travel for a meaningless game where they could expose all of the top players in the league to this virus that would shut them down for 14 days, which would really hurt their respective teams. Uh, yeah, personally, I don't get it. I have no idea why. The NFL, which is the league that doesn't care about player safety, didn't have uh, their Pro Bowl. They did it on Madden 21, which was really weird uh, to watch. But it seemed entertaining enough to watch the highlights of Marshawn Lynch broke his chair celebrating an interception, which was funny. Uh, but yeah, I just don't understand the NBA going ahead with the All-Star game. Seems like a money grab. I'm, I'm disappointed. Uh, from a league that's supposed to be pretty progressive. Yeah, it, I mean, I don't know uh, how much, if it's too little too late for player protest. I I can't imagine in this season that anyone's going to enjoy it or look forward to it. And that's the whole point is it's fun to watch the players have fun and they're not going to be having fun out there. It's... I you remember the All-Star game was kind of that last great sporting event before everything shut down. The, uh, of course, the passing of Kobe and how they incorporated that into the All-Star game with one team wearing only 24 and the other team wearing eight. And at the end of the third quarter, uh, it was first to that score plus 24. And it came down to the last shot and every t both teams were trying. The entire crowd was on their feet. The intensity was insane. We had that excellent photo of Giannis bringing the ball up. LeBron in that deep defensive stance looks like he wants it. And you've got like Spike Lee, Beyonce, all these like huge stars sitting on the sideline, all leaning in to watch what's going to happen. It was an electric all-star game. Uh, obviously the NBA wants to have that this year, but I think he got away until next year. Uh, and when it finally comes back, it'll be super, super special. I really love the uh, Elim ending they added to the All-Star game. Yeah, and on like, there's so much stress right now. And let the All-Stars enjoy the break the rest of the players are going to enjoy because I, I actually hope no Raptors get picked for it because I think the time off is so important in this situation. And no risk. All right. Uh, that wraps up the NBA storylines. We'll take one more break and finish up with some hockey talk. And we're back for some talking hockey in the Canadian division. The way the last or our podcast is structured time-wise is kind of convenient because we've gotten to watch a couple of series, two and three gamers play out. So the last episode, we were talking about parody in the division. I, well, I was ready to fully take that back, but then the Sens beat the Habs, so I'm not quite sure. But we did, we have gotten to see the Canadian division play out a little more in terms of where the hierarchy's at. 
So starting off, the Montreal Canadiens absolutely ran right over the Vancouver Canucks in their two-game series. I, neither game was close. Three, four-goal margins in both, I believe. Um, the Canucks just... We'll talk about this more at the end when we go over the Leafs game against them, but they've got some skill there, but they don't have the depth. They've got some goaltending, but the forwards just aren't getting back and making the plays defensively. The defensemen are leaving too much space on the ice, and teams with offense are just running right over them, and it's going to be a huge challenge for them to stay as contenders in this division as the season goes on because I'm not really sure what adjustments they can make. I just don't think they're deep enough to have the success I thought they'd have and kind of starting to get exposed over the this stretch of games, the, the Habs just running over them. They need more out of their goaltending one. Demko and uh, Holtby have been less than... Uh, mediocre and uh their defense right now looks like a revolving door like even last night i was watching the leafs game but it just looks like guys can get where they want on their defense uh whether that's beating them outside or beating them in battles in front of the net i think that the canucks really need to get more out of their defense on the defensive side of the puck uh i know it's obvious but uh they've got a lot of guys who like to jump up and uh, they need to focus a little bit more on their back end yeah, yeah, I'm not too sure about the goaltending. I think uh, it's more on the players than the goalies for this. I mean, Demko obviously showed crazy flash of brilliance last playoffs, and the Canucks betting on that when they decided to let Markstrom go and uh, pick up Holtby in his replacement. So you knew that was a bit of a downgrade. But 25 years old for Demko, so plenty of time. But this starting to look like this isn't going to be the Canucks year. Uh, more on that in a second, but continuing with league parody or less parody, the Oilers similarly steamroll the Sens with McDavid just making a, putting a nice gap in between him and the rest of the league for that Art Ross trophy. Oh my God. Um, not a lot to say, but again, just the, I mean, I'm going to continue to say the Oilers are going to win or lose this season on the backs of McDavid and Dreisaitl. And when you put them against the less than stellar defenses, uh, that's going to be more than enough for them to light it up. Especially, I think, coming off that tough series for them against the Leafs where they picked up two of six points. So... McDavid just continuing to be the best player in the world. Then the most interesting series of the week was the Flames versus the Jets, where the Jets have picked up five out of six of the points they could. The Flames picking up two with a shootout win the first night and then back-to-back -back losses following. And both games were close, but the Jets just getting ahead on the goal scoring and the Flames not quite able to keep up. I should have looked up the total goals. I know they only had one last night. Um, the goal scoring woes of the Flames continuing though. Just Goudreau was the one consistent 
thing they had going for them. I think he was on a six, seven game point streak that got snapped. I mean, obviously going up against uh, Connor Hellebuck, tough challenge. So a bit of momentum shifting, I feel like for the Jets, I mean, if losing line and not having Shife or not Dubois on the ice right now, you've got things as their lowest moment of the season. And they're only going to get better when uh, Dubois is able to step in and join that system. So surging Jets past the Flames is kind of a storyline take I have over that series. Yeah, the Flames had seven goals in those three games. The Jets had 10. It wasn't a huge margin, but the Flames uh, are right now have scored as many goals as the Ottawa Senators. Uh, one less game, but like both of those teams sit at 27, and then the next closest team is the Jets with 39 goals in 11 games. So the Flames' goal-scoring woes are truly the story. They they've still sit far behind uh, the pack in terms of goals per game. And while we're talking about the Flames, uh, Sam Bennett, former fourth overall pick back in 2014, asking out, which uh, may or may not have contributed to him being a healthy scratch for this one. I mean, I don't know what you do if you're the Flames with that because trades are tough right now. I'm sure uh, you don't really want to give anyone to anyone in your division and I mean, you look at the Canucks and Toffoli and you're, I mean, that wasn't a trade. It was a free agency move, but you really scared of a situation like that coming back to bite you, even though I think Bennett would fit in great on the uh, Canucks or the Sens right now. But then if you want to trade to an American team, you've got to wait 14 days for whatever you're going to get back in return. Unless you're getting picks. Sorry? Unless you're getting picks. Yeah, but I I think if you're the Flames, you're a win-now team. I, I don't know if uh, picks are really the way you want to go. And even though I feel like they have a fairly – I'm happy to bank on that top six if I'm the Flames. You've got plenty of talent there in Goudreau, Monaghan, Chuck, um, great back deep core led by Giordano and Hannafin, great goaltending. So – I think uh, the Flames GM have to sit long and hard and figure out like what what do we need to make this team click? Maybe it's another like in their prime veteran, like 28, 30 year old type player who's maybe best days are over, but can still bring a lot the way the stars brought um, Pavelski onto their team, like a second line center who can anchor it. I'm, I can't, no one really comes to mind, but I don't, I mean, Bennett, didn't quite meet expectations and having a pretty cold season with one assist so far. So I don't know how much value you can even get for him, but uh, tough, tough position for the flames. I think this is a really great team. And I think, like I said, all the pieces are there, but it's certainly not clicking for them yet. All right. Now we can talk about the Leafs Canucks. Before we get there quickly, I just want to touch on a team outside of the North Division, and that is the Boston Bruins. I'm sorry, ugh, hate saying even their name, but they get David Pasternak back, who arrives with a hat trick against the Philadelphia Flyers a couple nights ago. Um, that line is finally back together. 
the the line of death that just continues to just kill other teams somehow with Bergeron, Marchand, and and Pasternak, and that's a scary sight uh, for the East Division as they will start to make their way and, and mow down teams there. They even <laughs> these Bruins team man just continues to win. Uh, that's why I couldn't pick against them. They've played one less game than the Flyers and Capitals, uh, but sit atop the East Division. Uh, and they only just got their leading goal scorer back. Yeah, it's it's pretty unbelievable. A goal differential of plus 11, uh, which is far and away the best in the division. Uh, just really impressive stuff from them uh, as they continue to just wade their way through the wreckage of the regular season relatively unscathed. Uh, so, yeah, uh, uh, reserved uh Congratulations, I guess, to the the Boston Bruins. The most comfortable we'll ever be giving the Bruins congratulations this season. But speaking of hat tricks, my number one Toronto sporting moment of the week of the month, Jason Spezza at 38 years old, putting up a hat trick against the Canucks. Man, does that feel good to say. My girlfriend is an Ottawa Senators fan parents are both Ottawa Senators fans in the group chat Jason Spezza got a hat trick they're both there thinking what the heck is going on (laughs) they're so rattled because they were not a fan of Spezza when he left the Sens they hate the drop passes which I can I can vibe with Uh, but just so fun to rub that in their face (laughs) because he's sitting there on the fourth line only one of the goals was a power play goal one of them came from one of the sauciest passes I've ever seen from Nick Patan like that. It was like two feet off the ice and landed right on his stick for a tap in. Um, yeah. Great game from Spezza. And that's what I was saying. We need, we need a third or fourth line guy to really step up. The third line has given energy, but really not much from Kerfoot, McKayev and, and uh, I don't know, BC, but yeah, it was, is fantastic to get contribution from the fourth line uh, specifically from Spezza. Yeah, and that power play goal was so beautiful too. Just the way he sat at the top of the blue line, made himself space, stepped in, uh, fantastic screen by Hyman, and then just so great to see, like 38 years old, you still got it. I mean, what a story going from being scratched in the home opener with his family in the stands by Babcock to being a key part of what, might or soon to be hopefully the number one team in the division i i mean from the face-off success the power play contributions uh heading a fourth line that is bringing much needed energy and yeah i mean i love the speed of mikhaev when he gets the puck but I feel like it's just a matter of time before he starts popping in some shorties uh similarly with kerfoot he had one play in that game where I loved it, he took the puck, he skated it in, he wound his way through, but then he ended up kind of in the top middle of the offensive zone and he didn't know what to do with it. And he ended up like dropping it, turning it over. So I, th- I think Mikheyev and Kerfoot have some real potential with speed, obviously uh, with the Thornton injury right now. Hyman not on that line. I mean, VC, another speedy type player. So there's a lot of offensive potential there, but maybe you want Hyman back on there for grit. It'll be interesting to see what Sheldon Keefe does 
when Thornton returns, obviously he's still tweaking the lines. I'm pretty happy to see Wayne Simmons on that second line. That's kind of where I thought he'd be when the Leafs picked him up. Um, but yeah, it's Tavares finally getting his first uh, five-on-five goal of the season. Nylander with a game-high three points. Matthews continuing the goal-scoring streak with two. Marner, I think, is on a nice point streak. And Freddie finally looking mostly steady. I don't know that it was a bit tough when they kept scoring, getting ahead, and then the Canucks going right back. I think they had two goals each within like a minute or less. So that was a little like, but they pulled it out. And I mean, when you're the number two team and your rivals, the Habs are the number one team and they just steamroll the Canucks, that's exactly what you want to see. And in the end, that's what the Leafs did. So that's, it's nice to see them do what they're supposed to do for a change. It was a great night last night to be a Leafs fans as the Sens get the win over the Habs, which was lovely. Um, yeah, got, how about that? The Sens, the bottom team with wins over the top two teams. I mean, <laughs> the Canucks, the Oilers, the Flames. I don't think the Flames have played them yet, but the Jets all decimating the Sens. And then <laughs> the Sens getting wins over the Leafs and Habs. I mean, momentum's a bitch in hockey. Those two very late goals for the Sens against the Habs. And then Matt Murray, one of the last goaltenders you want to see in the pipes when you have a comeback to mount and the pabs did their best they absolutely outshot outscoring chance the uh sends late in the game but murray stood tall and i think when stutzel is leading or sparking the team in points like that there's just so much more like energy that's going to give you all right i got some facts some cold hard facts if Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl vanished from this planet and never returned, Mitch Marner would be leading the NHL in points. That's I like that cold hard fact. Fact. Uh, fact. John Tavares is sixth in the league in faceoff percentage, but he's second place on the Toronto Maple Leafs in fa- faceoff percentage too. Jason Spezza, who is third in the league in NHL faceoff percentage. Fact. So incredible face-off percentage from these two lads. Fact, the big four all have double-digit points on the season. Where's that money talk now? The money's talking. The Leafs are winning. Fact. Feels good. Fact. <laughs> oh, just good to see the kids play into their potential. Uh, obviously, there's still a long ways to go. But this is, this is the best they've looked in a really long time. Uh, and so just enjoying the ride right now because you know there's going to be a couple-week stretch here where we get frustrated and they take their foot off the gas and they make some terrible mistakes and they have some lackadaisical efforts and they have some periods where they just disappear and everyone's got questions about Freddie and everyone's got questions about Marner stepping up and, and where's Tavares and, and who's going to step up for our last two lines. But right now, and there's a softie. success. Enjoy the success. Yes, my dad loves to say he's a hair skater. <laughs> Did you, there was uh, Nylander drew a penalty behind the net that kind of cracked me up. Like he got hit by the shaft of a high stick and he just like spun around and skated away from the puck. That kind of killed me. Discombobulated. Yeah. But alas, we move along and the Leafs sit atop the North Division. 
Yeah. Will we still be there by the end of this weekend? Who knows? Yeah. I mean, we've got uh, two more games, I think, against the Canucks. And so many of the goals were just stretch open ice. Like, we were able to move the puck the way we wanted to move the puck. That uh, was it Tavares' goal, I think. Like, Riley to Nylander, Nylander to Tavares, obviously the sauce by Patan. Um, just this stretch of games against the Canucks, hopefully letting the Leafs get a little more comfortable carrying and moving the puck. I mean, with I love the puck possession system that O'Keefe has run, or Keefe has run. And I feel like just the more time and comfort they have uh, playing with the puck and we're building the chemistry just the better this team's gonna get so i love the series against the canucks for a chance to develop and grow that a little more and have that confidence right at its peak as we go up against the habs but more on that monday absolutely uh podcast went a little bit longer than i thought but that's all right because we had some great conversations today want to thank everyone for listening and continuing to show support uh Don't forget to share with your friends. We're still trying to build this following of virtual neighbors. Uh, Keep everyone entertained uh, while we still continue to sit inside. Uh, But thank you once again. Uh, I'll leave it up to you, Max. Yeah, if you're watching this on YouTube, a like, a subscription helps a lot. Um, Hope you've enjoyed it. Till next time, Sports Next Door signing off.